Welcome to another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is Bobby Bonanno, the founder and president of the Fire Island Pines Historical Preservation Society. Today, we'll talk about some of the famous bars from the past in Fire Island. So welcome to the show, Bobby. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, first, I just want to say that I applaud you um, for doing what you do. Uh, I, you're, uh, you know, I can see that this is a passion project and I can so relate to that because uh, I do my own passion projects and it, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, nobody really understands the amount of work, uh, but they're very easy to point out and criticize. And um, so it's it's a it's a a rocky road of creativity uh, where you grasp your moments of uh, you know acknowledgement and uh, you just try to get through the the moments that there is none. Yeah, it's so, a it's a lot of work and not a whole lot of reward. Um, definitely not financial reward, but. It has brought so much joy to so many people. Uh, I, I manage a uh, Facebook group that I started about a year ago called Gay Archives, and we now have 2.7 thousand members. And those people, every time we post something about, you know, a bar from the past or a memory or whatever, there's so much positive feedback. It just kind of warms your heart. It makes you feel like you've actually, you know, contributed to, um, the happiness of somebody out there, whether it's one person or a dozen people, you know, at least you feel like you're putting some good back in the world. And of course, that's exactly what you do with the Fire Island Pines Historical Society. Well, thank you. And yes, I, I totally agree. Um, uh, you know, I would like you to think like I do. I am doing legacy work. And that is what you're doing. And yes, it is, um, we're here to make people remember, and we're here to uh, teach people about the past uh, and mentor young people. That's a, a big part of our mission, uh, is to let people know what, what, how things were, um, because they don't. And that's how we got to where we are today. It, exactly. Uh, people you know, had to um, sacrifice and um, hide themselves. Uh, and, you know, going to a bar sometimes was like an espionage trip. So, so it's, it's, it's what I call legacy work. It's, um, it's what you're going to leave behind and it's what I'm going to leave behind. And as you know, and I both know, you know, it, it is not a financial job. It's not about that. And some people find that really hard to believe. They find it really hard to believe that people do stuff for nothing. Now, before we start talking about specific bars in um, Fire Island, let's put this into a little bit of perspective for people. You know, there are some really well-known gay bars that historically and currently are located in Fire Island. But Fire Island is not this huge place. It is not. 8 million people in Manhattan. It's not millions of people in Los Angeles. How big is Fire Island? Mm. Fire Island is a small uh, 
strip of land uh, that is adjacent to Long Island uh, it is certainly not a, a big place. I mean, there are parts of it that you could stand in the middle and look from one walk to the other and see the ocean on one side and the bay on another. There are 17 tiny little communities. Um, some are just a drop in the bucket uh, where you can't get to them unless you have a boat. Some of them are like the Pines is the, one of the biggest communities there. Um, so it is, and I think that's the unique part about it. Uh, I found out very early on when I was doing this that Byron is a, you know, in the gay world, it is a universal word. It's that's why to me the history is so important, whether you went there or you didn't. It's always this um, gay mecca that people think about and um, and talk about. Uh, so yes, it's um, it's a drop in the ocean, literally, but a magical place, a magical journey. Um, I can't say more about it. Absolutely. To me, it's like the, uh, the Key West of the Northeast. Another tiny little place that's like a little gay mecca. It or is. And, and it is, and it's still, you know, it has changed rapidly. I mean, and especially in the last couple of years, which we'll talk about, uh, the, you know, there is a whole new generation of people that are coming there now. And that's why what we're doing is so important and that's why I'm so passionate about it. Um, I, uh, I want these people to know that things happened before you got here that allow you to have these incredible freedoms. And yes, we live in a world today where you could be gay anywhere, but there's nothing like Fire Island. You get on a boat and the world drifts away. And when you get there, you can so truly be yourself um, that there's never looking over your shoulder at who's looking at you. So let's let's talk about um, one particular bar that is iconic. Many people know about it, have heard about it. It was located on Cherry Grove, and it was called Ice Palace. Yeah, the Ice Palace. Um, first of all, Cherry Grove and the Pines are sister communities, and like sisters, you know they um, they've had their spats and they've had their rivalry. Um, and this has been going on for years. Uh, but to be very honest, there would be no Fire Island Pines if there was not a Cherry Grove. And we touch upon the history of Cherry Grove. They have their own archive committee, um, which we, you know, communicate with. But um, Cherry Grove's history goes back into the 30s and the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And so it's, you know, the Pines started in the 50s. So um, it's, a, it's just an incredible history. But also, um, the, you know, the, the Grove played a very big role in the involvement of the Pines, and especially the Ice Palace, because the Ice Palace had several names, you know, before it became the Ice Palace. It was, um, trying to think of the name, um, Tiffany's. Um, it started out as, uh, you know, a restaurant kind of thing. Um, it, you know, the hotel was always a big, big part of it. But in the 70s, with the advent of disco, um, it became 
a very big, you know, the advent of disco was just a huge explosion on Fire Island. So the Ice Palace took hold of that. Um, the Ice Palace, there was also Ice Palace 57 in New York. Um, so that two of them, uh, this was the whole era of Studio 54. And so Fire Island became, um, and the Ice Palace became the Studio 54 of Fire Island. And the people in the Pines on a Saturday night would make the journey to the Ice Palace because that was the place that you got down. That was the place where the music was incredible. Um, and they left the Pines, which, you know, had their own little uh, things going on, the tea dance, uh, other things. But Saturday night was owned by the Ice Palace. And a man named Michael Fesco, who was managing it in the 70s, is the one that really gave it that stamp. He, he uh, created the look of it. Uh, he helped to bring in these New York DJs that um, created this music there that drew all of these people like flies to uh, the light. And so people would go uh, in the pines and leave and walk. Uh, many would walk through the meat rack um, between the grove and the pines and dance till one, two, three, four in the morning and then walk back at sunrise. And these are, you know, I've spoken to many people. These are, you know, just beautiful memories that they have of, um, you know, of friendship and love and, you know, all that kind of stuff where you just experience this um, incredible night of music and, and then just watch the sunrise as you walked home. But it's been there forever um, through fires and storms and uh, it is still standing. What is it now? It is still a, a club. Um, it's, it's run very much like a resort. Um, that's, you know, that's a big difference I see uh, between the Pines and the Grove. Um, there are shows there. There are, um, you know, this all takes place in this Ice Palace uh, club and um, hotel complex. And, you know, throughout the whole day there, there is stuff going on that you can come up and see a drag show and, uh, you know, have a tea dance. I mean, is it what it was? No, but is anything what it was? Um, we decided last year to do an event that we've done in the Pines for many years. Uh, it's a, t a special tea dance that we do. And we did it in Cherry Grove, and it was a huge, huge success. And we're going to be doing it next uh, next season. And uh, people love the idea of, you know, there is sort of an older clientele there. So going out in the day, which I can totally relate to, um, they like that, you know, rather than late night. But, you know, it is also the home of the famous underwear party, which is a big, big Friday night event uh, that the same thing, all the Pines boys come over and it is a big event at the Ice Palace held by promoter Daniel Nardisio. Now, a lot of people don't realize that back in the days of disco, it was a real uh, kind of crown jewel in the local community to have a big, like a big city disco in your town. Um, and I think the Ice Palace probably filled that space uh, for Fire Island back then. You know, you didn't find them so much in the little tiny towns, but the cities like New York and Los Angeles and Atlanta, 
they had these huge, um, you know, amazing discos that were just throbbing with energy. And uh, that's something that we've kind of lost over the years. We don't see as much of that anymore in the gay bar scene. Yeah, because it really, it was on all of Long Island, it, it, it was the place to go because on Long Island, it was very much like what you're talking about. It was all little clubs and local yokel um, establishments. Uh, if you wanted that kind of experience, you had to go into New York. Well, then we were lucky enough because I live on Long Island to be able to get on a boat and experience that whole city kind of atmosphere, which is still the case. You know, we can, you know, I'm very blessed that I can get on a boat and dip my toe into a, a metro world and just get on a boat and go home or stay over. Uh, so, yes, it was um, it was that it, it um, fed that kind of need uh, for that. How long did the Ice Palace last? Uh, the Ice Palace is still going. It started in 1970. Um, like I said, it evolved out of those other kind of clubs that were there. The hotel and the club were always there. It just, uh, like I said, with the advent of disco, then it became the Ice Palace, and it's still there today and, um, you know, thriving as much as uh, a business can thrive. Um, you know, doing business on Fire Island is is a big thing. I mean, you only have three really good months to make money. And that's what people don't understand. And if the weather plays a role in it, you know, we've had parties where, uh, you know, hurricanes wash them away. Um, so the best laid plans, I mean, our event that we did last year, the next day it poured. And I was like, oh my God, if that happened, you know, because the Ice Palace, uh, for those who don't know, is a, you know, indoor, outdoor place. There's all doors that are all open on the sides and the front. And so you're constantly in and out of dipping your toe in the water of, of what's happening. And so if the weather's not good, it changes that whole day. It always changes the dynamic out there. It's like a light switch. You know, if the, if the clouds come in, things go on, but not as festive as they would you know, in a in an atmosphere where the, the sun is out. So we were just really lucky because it would have changed the whole dynamic. And also you get people who just don't want to go over. You know, they, they don't want to go over from the, from Long Island and they don't want to go over from the Pines if the weather is not great. Now there's another iconic um, facility in Fire Island Pines that you've mentioned. And again, many people know about it. People who have never been there have heard of it. And that was the pavilion. What would you, how would you describe the pavilion? Yeah, the pavilion has had many um, lives. Sort of a cat with nine lives. Uh, the pavilion was the answer to, um, to what the ice palace was. Um, but without... With, I can't mention the pavilion without mentioning its predecessor, which was the Sandpiper. The Sandpiper was a, a uh, you know, a small little house restaurant that just evolved again with the advent of disco. It became, you know, sort of the in place to go in the Pines. 
and um, it was it grew and grew and grew. And then uh, in nineteen um, seventy nine, it was sold to a bunch of partners, and they decided to open. You know, there was also a lot of complaints about noise with disco in the community in the Pines. So the pavilion was built and it was a completely different structure. I mean, it literally was a box. That's what they, how everybody called it. They said it was the box that the new ferry came in because that year they had a new ferry. And so it was a very jarring thing for the community because they were used to this very beach-like um, sort of simple beachy vibe place called the Sandpiper. And then in came this box building you know, that was all encased. And um, and a part of that reason was because of the noise. So it would keep the noise inside. But the great thing about the first pavilion, which opened in, in 1980, was the fact that it had this incredible balcony that overlooked the dance floor. So, um, so you could hang with your friends and whether you were participating in the music down below, uh, you could do that or you could be up there looking and, and enjoying it just as much and enjoying the music because you were watching people dancing. So it became sort of an experience just to do that. And people really loved that aspect of it. And um, it ended up ending the, uh, the era of going to the Ice Palace um, even though the Ice Palace went on and still had its own thing, um, the Pines created their own dance culture. And, um, uh, and the, the pavilion was owned by, um, again, like I said, partners. And the rest of the community was owned by a man named John White, who, who owned um, the, uh, you know, the Blue Whale and the... Uh, Cultured Elephant, which was a, a food place, the pool, the hotel. And so it became sort of a competition for him. And um, I will say that in uh, 1989, he ended up purchasing, they sold the building and uh, those partners, and he ended up buying the whole thing. And it ended up becoming very similar to what it is now, the same thing, a man, uh, man named PJ McAteer, who um, owns most of the, the properties there, he ended up purchasing um, all of the, he had only owned uh, the Sip and Twirl building, Sip and Twirl Club. He ended up buying all of those other buildings. And now he is sort of the, you know, the king of that domain. So when John White uh, bought that, he added the, the elegance of the chandeliers that were in there and created it. You know, it was really the height of dance culture um, where, you know, the all night dancing um, uh, with some enhancement by different things that went on there. Um, but that was the era of all of that. And um, unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, but uh, you know, the Pines has gone through several different ownerships. And in uh, 2006, uh, he saw John White, who was elder, uh, sold it to a man named Eric von Kersteiner, who uh, decided to build a new pavilion as part of his plan. He, he, uh, I, I give him a lot of credit because he uh, brought a whole generation to the Pines. At that point, 
John White was tired and was not putting any money into it. And, you know, we were, you know, it was, it's always been a very mixed community of, of, of older and younger because it's very affluent and, you know, you have to have money to live there. Um, so a lot of people were of a certain age, but he brought a whole, uh, through marketing and uh, just the way he, his plan, he brought a whole younger contingent there and so uh, they ended up building a new pavilion, which again was another very uh, topical thing because everybody has something to say there. And it was very, very different than the first one. Um, and the mistake that they made was that they did not honor the balcony. And the balcony was a very big part of the pavilion. And that was everybody's big complaint about it. Uh, but it had its own stamp on it. And um, because of building permits and things like this, it couldn't look the way it looked. Nothing, it just doesn't happen that way there. You can't rebuild and make things exactly as they were because the codes are different and things like that. But uh, so that went on for quite some time. And then we had a fire that burned the pavilion down. And the building in back of it also, which housed the uh, Sip and Twirl Club, and it was a big, big thing. And um, they rebuilt the pavilion as a very avant-garde. Again, there was a change of ownership, um, and they had a very, very different idea. And they built this very avant-garde uh, guard pavilion. Again, still not... Um, you know, in the end, they started trying to create a little bit of a balcony area, but it just never, it has never lived up to what it was. But again, I don't know, it's that saying, can you go home again? I don't know if you can. The world is different. People don't go out dancing all night anymore on a regular basis. So it's become um, sort of an entertainment space. It's never lived up to the p potential of uh, the design. The design really wasn't functional. Um, and so it's still an involvement. Um, I think you're going to see changes in it in the next coming years. Um, and I hope um, they find it's really true potential. Uh, but, you know, so is the... Um, the culture has changed. So I, I don't know. That's something that changes constantly. And um, I don't know how they're going to address all of that. But um, it's still there. Um, it's still viable. And um, it's part of the history of the Pines. Now, a lot of people who have heard about stories about the Pines over the years, um, kind of have an image, I guess, due to the 70s, 80s, 90s, of this kind of hedonistic circuit party atmosphere where everybody's on vacation and their whole goal is just to, you know, blow off steam and have the most fun they can in any way they can. Um, do you think that's a, a valid interpretation of what, you know, Fire Island Pines was like in those years? Um, you know, the Fire Island, the Pines has always had a um, sort of a glamorous image. And that was, 
you know, created many years ago because the original owner, who, whose name was Peggy Fears, was a Ziegfeld uh, showgirl. And she, um, through her contacts, she drew a very uh, elite clientele of people, um, Broadway, Hollywood. Uh, so that was starting to help create that image. And that, you know, they mixed in with locals, the locals from Sayville, who were investing. This was all people investing in the new community. And so she kind of uh, brought that whole glamorous image. And then John White, who, uh, you know, bought it from her in the 60s, was a, a big model. So he brought a whole contingent of um, models and fashion people. So that bumped up the image even more. And um, and in the 70s, it just, you know, like I, you know, with disco and all of that, it became a very glamorous place where people could go and really let their hair down, literally. And so what you're saying is true. It was, um, you know, to the, to the dismay of a lot of local people who, who came over there thinking that they were going to have this little family community, which is how they marketed the community, the people who were selling them the Pines in the beginning marketed it as a family community. And I always like to say that um, it still is, um, but we created our own family, uh, very much like what goes on today. It's just a different kind of family, but it just, um, it didn't turn out the way they planned. And, um, you know, more and more people were hearing about it. And again, like I said, yes, you could let your hair down. You could um, throw caution to the wind. Um, how I feel about it today is that, yes, is there that component? Yes, it's still there. However, I compare Fire Island to like a cruise ship. It could be whatever you want it to be. Uh, you could go there um, looking for a weekend of solitude with some books and just be reading a book on the beach all day and then sitting in a wooded area reading your book and being totally quiet. You could bring your uh, boyfriend there and have the ro most romantic weekend of your life. You could be there with your uh, partner and go into your home that you never left, leave the home. You are, you're out gardening. Uh, you have a dinner party where you have some friends over. Uh, they never step their foot into town the whole time. Or you could go there and let your hair down and get crazy and be out all night and, um, you know, just go to the Grove and walk back and just, so it truly is whatever you want, whatever kind of experience you want it to be, it can be. And it's totally up to the individual to, to choose that. Nobody forces you, um, there's room for all of it. Now, how would you describe the Fire Island kind of party club scene today? Today, um, you know, the Pines has always been about house parties. Um, and that's so true today, especially with the, the whole pandemic that ended up happening where people stayed close to their homes and, you know, wanted to be with people they knew. So that still goes on a lot. Um, the club atmosphere is, um, 
is something I don't see a lot. It's very infrequent during the season. It happens, but not every weekend, even though they try. Uh, what is um, a common, uh, not a common, but a tradition is the tea. Um, I call it, still call it the tea dance. It is now low tea and high tea. Well, so we don't have high tea, but they, they've played on that word. But at six o'clock in the Pines, I say the gay bell rings that only gays hear and out of the woods they come in and it's it's something to see because it'll start out with three people at five and then by six it's packed. And it's sort of the place to see and be seen. And, um, you know, and yes, there's music played. Um, I would like to see people dance more and not necessarily look at their phones. Um, but it is a tradition and it's something that goes on and that is a constant. That has not changed. Um, again, like I said, a lot, there's a lot of migration to Cherry Grove for different things. Um, the Pines is still, the nightlife in the Pines gets quiet sometimes. Like I said, the, there's a lot of house parties. Now, as a as a contrast to that, um, you wrote a book a while back that kind of um, memorializes um, the kind of party atmosphere of Fire Island Pines, and it was called, I believe, Beach, nineteen seventy nine. Is that correct? Yeah, it's um, Beach. Um, we do have a very, very big event that we do every year called the Pines Party, and that happens in July, and uh, it is a huge, huge on-the-beach event um, that is an all-night party, and it is amazing, And it, but it is based on this party that happened in 1979 that was called Beach that started out as a, it was a fundraiser. It was just, uh, they needed a new fire truck. Very homespun story. That's why I love the story of it. Um, I loved writing the book about it because it really is sort of a fairy tale of, um, but it's also about community and volunteerism. Um, some things that have sort of left, you know, the, the mainstream. Uh, but that party was the model for every outdoor party that has ever happened since. Uh, and it was a huge feat because it involved cre uh, a creative uh, conglomeration of the, the best of the best who all were living in the pines. I mean, all these designers and fashion people and lighting designers and architects, and um, they all came on board to help create with the local craft people. And at that point, the Pines was very segregated. Um, there were the straights and the gays, and there was no fighting, but what that party did was it forced them to work together, and it just created a mutual respect for each other, because they had to work with these people, and they would say, wow, look at this thing they designed, and then they would manufacture it, and the, the, the designers would say, wow, look at what these people can do. So it really was um, an amazing event, uh, celebrities, you know, it became the ticket that, you know, everybody had to have as the, as the summer went on, 
and the party was being planned, it became an event. I mean, it was on the cover of Architectural Digest. Um, Scott Bromley, who was a, a friend of mine who designed Studio 54 was, and he's an architect. He was one of the, the designers of it. Um, and just, you know, it involved the disco superstars of the era. Uh, we did a great uh, talk, which I have on YouTube, um, of uh, where we celebrated the 40th anniversary in 2019. And we brought back all of the people to talk about it. And um, it was great to discover, you know, that Donna Summer was supposed to be the, the big act. And if that would have happened, it would have been mind-blowing. But... Uh, she was in Las Vegas, and there was no way they could get her there. Uh, she was at the height of her fame. and um, But a lot of those Casablanca artists, the village people, for some reason were just not asked. And they were friends of some of the people that were there, and it just didn't, I don't know, it just got lost in the, the mainstream. But, you know, uh, the 16-year-old singer, Fran Jolie, who performed her big, big hit, Come To Me, which became a huge hit, um, we brought her back in 2019. I brought her back many times. She loves it, and she's a big supporter of the, the Pines. But that party is a, a, an amazing uh, feat that, you know, is so just a given today. But to, to build sound on the beach was unheard of. You know, how would you do that? How would you, you know, they built a stage, they built all of it. And um, it went from sunrise to sun, I mean, sunset to sunrise. And it was um, a beautiful spectacle. And it's, um, I'm so glad I, I, I got to document it. And uh, I do believe it's, it's, a, it's a movie that could happen. Um, Ryan Murphy, I hope you're listening. So, um, you know, it could, it's a great story, but the book uh, is great. Um, we sell it on our site. And also, uh, like I said, the parties now are much bigger and much more technical. But the framework of how that started, Beach was the, the model of how that happened. Well, very cool. And maybe we'll uh, connect with somebody who who will be interested in making a movie about that. Um, I recently interviewed uh, two men, Lloyd Coleman and Gary Steinberg, who are integrally involved in the, um, the movie called about Studio One. It's called Studio One Forever. And um, of course, I've already interviewed Todd Stevens, who did the uh, series of movies about um, Sandusky, Ohio, and the Universal Fruit and Nut Company. <laughs> Um, the latest one being Swan Song, which is, has gotten lots of great reviews. So maybe somebody in that circle will hear your story and say, yeah, we'd like to uh, talk to you about how we can put together a movie project. And, and I think that would be great because we need more movies about the things that made our gay community what it is today. You know, everybody wants to talk about the Jeffrey Dahmer story or something else. And we don't need any more of that. We need more of you know, the nightlife and the bars and the, the exciting elements that have um, brought us to where we are today and made us a community. I mean, that's how we became connected, was through the bars and the, and the parties. Uh, agreed. And, um, and of course, it, they have to have a positive message. And, uh, you know, music, uh, 
as as Madonna to quote Madonna, music makes people come together, and um, that's what it did. And and bars and clubs were the places that that happened. And and yes, this is uh, the story is all about that. And um, so yes, and uh, years ago, Ryan Murphy came and shot the Normal Heart in uh, in the Pines, and uh, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, Larry Kramer is a mentor to me. Um, he passed in the last couple of years and uh, spent much time in the Pines. I met him. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. Now, one of the other hats that you wear is um, being the founder and president of the Fire Island Pines Historic Preservation Society. And you've been doing that, I believe, for, what, 10 or 11 years now, uh, kind of working on documenting the history of Fire Island Pines, including the nightclub and nightlife scene, but in general, the entire history of that area. Um, and that's, that's brought you into contact with a lot of information that happened even before your own time. Uh, what is one of your favorite memories or stories about uh, Fire Island Pines that you would like to tell everybody if you, you know, if they just said, hey, tell me something about Fire Island Pines I don't already know. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, um, just, uh, you know, the, just the camaraderie. It's, um, you know, the, the, the Pines has always had a very upscale image. And um, yes, is there um, some snobbery there? Yeah, there is. Uh, but the people... If you get to know the people, there is, you know, there are people that care. Uh, they care about community. Uh, it's very, very tight knit, but it is small town, uh, but on a much higher level. Uh, but it's, you know, again, it's just this beautiful place that you, um, that it could be whatever you want it to be. I mean, I, I love mornings. Um, you you walk down to the beach and it's yours. There's nobody there, and you can do whatever you want. And you know, just sitting there with a cup of coffee, it's just the most amazing way to start your day. Uh, our sunsets are amazing. Uh, we have a beautiful beach that was replenished a couple of years ago, and um, it's just a, a magical. It, it really is a a, a magical place. It really is. And I, I've met the most amazing people, families that grew up there, which, you know, just beautiful stories. And, you know, these people are passing, you know, this year we've lost a lot of people. And that's why, again, um, the importance of what I'm doing is just paramount to me. You know, these people, their stories, they, you know, what I say to people is how do you want to be remembered? You know, that's really the question. If you, feel you made some sort of contribution in some way, but everybody's memories are, you know, to me, uh, you do not need to be a homeowner there. Um, whether you spent a weekend or a week or a season, um, they're your memories and, um, you own, you know, you own that. And, uh, so it doesn't, uh, you're not diminished in, in any way of, you know, as far as I'm concerned in the, in the club I belong to, everybody belongs. And um, so I've gotten the chance to, to hear about a weekend, and, but 
but that changed their lives. Or I've gotten the chance to, um, you know, hear about years and years of, of uh, you know, where they were there and saw all of it. You know, saw every, you know, went through the AIDS crisis and saw all the people, you know, pass. And, and so it's, um, it's just, a, it, it, what I enjoy about it is, uh, you know, I don't come from a historical background. I don't have an education in, in archiving and history. I walked by history for years, just like many, many people did and not necessarily cared, but something changed. Uh, an event happened that changed it for me. And, and uh, that's how, you know, this passion project was born. I can absolutely relate to that. Um, and it, my, my project kind of came out of a conversation about two years ago, a friend of mine who was one of the owners of Backstreet in Atlanta had asked me to come up with kind of a commemorative design to honor the fact that 2020 was the 45th anniversary of the opening of Backstreet. Now, they closed um, after about 30 years, but there's still a vibrant community remembering that bar. And it had special meaning to me as well, because I visited there for New Year's weekend and ended up moving there a week later, um, which changed the whole direction of my adult life. And... As a result of that conversation, I started having conversations with people about other memories from that same time frame. You know, when I first moved to Atlanta, and wasn't this a great bar? And wasn't that interesting? And wow, I can't believe we had this in the you know early 80s and so on. And it just mushroomed. And once COVID hit, I found myself with a lot of extra time. And I just started researching gay bars from all over the country. And now it's grown to, I think there's over 1,700 bars that I've documented over across the country that no longer exist. And um, every day it's a learning experience, but it, it's so important to remember these things and to preserve them for the generations that follow us so that they can understand that there is more to gay life than just, you know, the age crisis and just the oppressive legislation that was passed, but there was also a community side that made us strong enough to build all these organizations to, you know, help fight for our rights and make our lives the way they are today. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's, um, these were places where people congregated. Um, how would Stonewall have ever happened if there wasn't a bar there that brought those people together to, to, Talk about fighting. Talk about, you know, fighting what was going on. Um, I also think about, you know, the way people meet today and how uh, young people will never understand or know what it was like to look across a room and have somebody's eyes catch yours and that chemical thing that happened and just how it all came about and how you would maybe they moved closer or you finally they would talk to you and um it was this whole mysterious romantic thing that just doesn't happen today a picture of somebody's you know what is not romantic it's not you know and it's the way people meet today and um I don't know. I think people are going to have to pay for that in the future. Yeah. And we didn't, we didn't have the digital dossier 
to know that this person was, you know, an Aries who worked this kind of job and did this kind of thing in his spare time and had three dogs at home. And, you know, his bedroom is decorated like uh, a tropical forest. We didn't know any of those things. When we crossed paths with somebody in a bar, we knew a little bit about their, their energy and their smile and maybe their sense of style. And that was about it. And it was a learning process. It was, we were getting to know each other firsthand, not through digital trails that were left on their Facebook account or whatever. So it was a totally different experience. It, it is. It's, um, I don't know, you know, I find with many, many things in life, you know, everything old is new again. And, uh, there's a lot of recycling and, uh, of things that go on today because, um, it's just the way it is. So I, I do believe people will get back to that type of thing. I mean, they're, they're, today we live in a world where um, people are crave, craving intimacy, uh, especially because of this pandemic. And um, a lot of these young people have no idea what intimacy is. And it's just, it's not hooking up. Um, you know, after the hookup, they don't really know what to do. Um, and then texting is such a, excuse me, horrible way to communicate it because you're not hearing the tone. You're not hearing uh, the pause and the, you know, all of that. You're reading something that can be so misinterpreted and you're like, oh, I don't think they're interested. And meanwhile, they are. And um, there's a movie that I just watched the other night for like the seventh time. It is the most romantic, incredible movie called Pride and Prejudice. And it's about that. It's about um, how people were mis, you know, how things were misinterpreted and how uh, the prejudice of one per person uh, and then the pride of another kept them apart when they just needed to talk. And when they did, they, you know, the love they felt for each other won out. But uh, I'm not sure if that's the world we live in today. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. Now, you maintain a website called pineshistory.org, which is the website for the Fire Island Pines Historical Preservation Society. And on that website, you have lots of information and um, links to different stories and things about Fire Island from the past. Um, and one thing that I found on there that I was kind of curious I didn't even know that there was a connection um since I've been doing this bar research I found out about a lot of people who owned a lot of bars and the things they did and there was one man who owned a bar a chain of bars that were in Manhattan and I think they were in Miami and probably a couple other cities um Lou Katz and I knew about the story about his uh, murdering his ex-lover's new boyfriend. But I did not know that there was a Fire Island uh, connection to that. And apparently, despite the fact that he had a home on Park Avenue in Manhattan, he also had a home in the Pines. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. My, uh, my newest board member, John Dempsey, who has come aboard and uh, who's of that, this generation we're talking about, he uh, is the one that decided to do that story. And that's what lately, that's what we're starting. I'm starting to give him different stories or he comes up with ideas. And um, 
sometimes, you know, through that connection, it just creates, it's just an interesting little dip in the water. And so, yeah. And then it creates a lot of interest for people of, um, of the things that have gone on there. Like, um, like I said, I'm very lucky because there are other communities on fire Island where, you know, the main topic is fishing. (laughs) So I get to, to, you know, study and learn about fashion and art and architecture and maybe murder and um, just different things. And, um, you know, the website has uh, been a labor of love for me. Uh, I never really was happy with the way it looked. I had somebody helping me early on. And then uh, last winter, I had somebody mentor me and educate me about uh, a different platform And uh, little did I know that all of the posts that we made on the previous site have to be completely redone to be on the new platform. So I am still in the process. Every week, we are adding over hundreds of of archived posts. It's been great in a way because it's helped me to update every one of them, but they all look so much better than the way they looked um, uh, previously. And I know who I'm dealing with, um, you know, everybody wants things to look pretty and cohesive. And um, so it's become my everyday uh, mantra and and thing, you know, I post every day on social media to drive people to our website. Um, And so every morning I look at it like, I don't know how you look at it, but for me, it's like performance art. Uh, I'll get up, like, for instance, and I also look at what people were looking at, because on our website, I can look at different, uh, what people are viewing, if they're looking through our archives, and and so sometimes that will determine what I'm going to talk about. Sometimes topically, something's going on in the world that can relate to it. Um, sometimes it's just the beauty of, of this place that we, you know, I get pictures all the time from because social media has become my library. So there's constant archiving going on. Every day I'm archiving. So whether it's a beautiful sunset or um, like, for instance, somebody, a lot of people were looking at nudity in the pines. So that's tomorrow. That's, uh, I decided already tomorrow. That's what we're going to be talking about because it is a place where, um, you know, uh, nudity was, was, uh, you know, part of our culture. It was a bohemian place where people could go and feel free enough to do that. So because I saw people looking at that, that kind of inspired me to, that's what I'm going to be focusing on tomorrow. We have a post all about it in our archives. So that's kind of how it all happens. And um, But it really is driven by photos. We live in a photo-driven society. And um, I, I know my market and I know what drives them. So I can really uh, study that and know um, the kind of, sometimes the posts, you know, I know a certain post is going to be over the top and they're going to just be all, all on it. But then there's ones where I, it doesn't matter, you know, every day can't be 4th of July. So sometimes there are things that I just want to talk about that might not be as topical or popular, but it's, um, it's just the way I start my day every day now. And, uh, and I do, I love it. And sometimes, like you, you said, you have those questions about what are you doing and, and uh, you know, is it really important? And like, am I wasting my time? Um, but I, like I said, I, 
this is a legacy thing for me. Um, you know, when I'm long gone, hopefully uh, people will look back on this. And, you know, if I didn't do this as, as a wonderful person in my life has said to me many times, you created this out of nothing. There, is, there was nothing before. There was uh, some things that were thrown in a closet. And um, unfortunately, we didn't have the technology or the know-how or the chutzpah to, you know, to put this all together. But yeah, is it a lot of work? It is a lot of work. And um, I don't know about you, but I, you always have that one person that comes up and says, you know what I think you should do? And I, in my head, I say, yeah, you can, you know what yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and do it and I'll see what I think of it. Because um, you always have that person. And it's like, yeah, and you can go back to sitting in your armchair warrior position. You're probably one of those people that just sit on social media and tell everybody what they think they should do and do nothing with your life. But you have no idea the hours that it took to put things together. And like, you know, I think you should have left that out or you should have moved that there or added this. And it's like, yeah, that would have been another 10 hours. So um, you just have to roll past all of that and know what you're doing is important and long lasting. And like I said, it's, um, it's legacy work. And uh, someday somebody will look at that and say, wow, you know, you did that. And, um, and that's it. You know, and, and the biggest compliment to me always is a young person coming up to me and saying, I love what you do. Because it's like, that's the audience that I'm trying to reach. And I'm like, wow, you know, we did it. We got, we, uh, we got that person to, to look at it. And, and the same thing with the, you know, if all they're going to do is look at a photo on Instagram and see this little, which I call bite-sized pieces of history, and they come away with saying, I didn't know that. I'm like, wow, we did our job. Absolutely. And uh, I kind of feel like sometimes it's like that that famous uh, Sally Fields moment. They like me. They really like me. I will, like you, I, you've I, done something right, and and somebody out there appreciates it. Uh, that's so funny you should say that because uh, when and if that time happens, I will be quoting Sally Fields. <laughs> 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 because, and I have the whole thing it's a journey it's a it's a Sally Field journey and I'm not going to say anything because I think it could happen and when it does you will hear it and yes it does end with that it does all right then well I really appreciate the work that you do um you know saving the history of Fire Island Pines and at the end of this video I will post the information about the website and everything um, so people can find it about your social media pages so people can follow the story and learn more about Fire Island Pines but I do want to make one comment about the website that anybody that's out there you should definitely go and look at the website and in particular click on the store link and look at some of the cool stuff you can buy that you know instead of wearing that you know, generic Walmart t-shirt that, or whatever, that everybody has, you can find some cool vintage styles of t-shirts representing 
you know, the tea dance and the pines and things that that went on. And you can kind of feel like you're a part of history. It's kind of a retro uh, pop-up store that uh, not only will help spread the word about the pines, but also put a couple of nickels in the in the coffer so that uh, Fire Island Pines Historical Preservation Society can keep on and, and, you know, cover some of the expenses they have because it's a lot of work. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I use the, the word authentic merchandise because all of our logos are built on, uh, you know, are used from uh, the past. We do a lot of research. Um, and yeah, as you know, T-shirts are the, the history, they're the billboarders of where we've been. And we even do a little bit of history on that. Uh, so I do appreciate it. And yes, that is uh, during the summer, we have a pop-up store in the Pines in the Harbor that we sell merchandise. Um, and uh, I'm there a lot doing it. Um, so yeah, we, I, I appreciate that and um, all of it. And, and you, you know, you too, you're, you know, I love what you do and I so appreciate what you're doing. Um, so yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything you do. And thank you for taking the time to take a little stroll down memory lane and tell us a little bit about the history of the Pines. Thank you. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.